Well, I, I seem to have uh, pretty much lost my voice yesterday, so I'm, I'm sorry in advance for, um, for the weakness of my voice this morning, but I will focus on what I have here, and if you can focus on what I'm saying and not how I say it, we'll get through this. Um, those of you who know Tom know that Tom loves Christmas, and uh, he's actually got an app on his phone that counts down the days to Christmas and plays Christmas music. So every morning when Tom comes into the office, he announces you know, how many days are left until Christmas, and we all kind of oblige him, oh, tell us, Tom, you know, we really want to know. <laughs> um, but a few weeks ago, as he was kind of planning ahead, he realized, you know, this week he'd have a lot of uh, Christmas lights, the Christmas tree to put up, I'm sure, family gatherings, and so he needed a fill-in um, for, for preaching, and so he wrangled me into that, and so you can blame him that I'm up here this morning. <laughs> Sorry about that. Uh, but last week, Tom preached from Matthew 22, where Jesus claims to be David's son and David's Lord at the same time. So the human son and the divine Lord in the same body. Now this morning, post-Thanksgiving, we begin our Advent series leading up to Christmas. How many days? He doesn't know. He doesn't know. You can pull out your app. Um, but we're, we're, uh, we're beginning this Advent series, which the church celebrates leading up to Christmas, the, the Sundays between Thanksgiving and Christmas, setting our attention on Jesus Christ on, on uh his coming. So we're not going to keep moving in Matthew 23. If you looked ahead at Matthew 23, you saw that it's a, a series of seven woes that Jesus pronounces against the Pharisees for, the, for their wickedness and, and rebellion. Uh, just these curses kind of stacked one on top of each other, which doesn't make for great Christmas meditations. And so we're turning instead to John, the Gospel of John, chapter 1 to reflect on the meaning and significance of Jesus. The Bible tells the true story of the world. The Christian faith claims to be history. So the Bible could be studied as a, as a textbook almost on history. It's full of primary sources and movements of civilizations. There's nothing ahistorical or historically insignificant about this book. It is the true story of the world. And central to the storyline that it gives us is the birth of one particular person. So we may change B.C. before Christ or A.D., Anno Domini, the year of our Lord, to C.E., the common era, or B.C.E., before the common era. And yet the fact remains that history hinges on the birth of this one person, Jesus of Nazareth. No serious historian, whether Christian or not, would question the existence of Jesus. The Bible tells us the true story of the world. The, the Christian faith claims to be history. And, and the Christian story calls the birth of Jesus the incarnation. God taking on flesh. There's nothing more important in Christianity than the incarnation of Jesus Christ. To tell the story without the incarnation or to get that part of the story wrong would be like telling the story of Moby Dick and leaving out the whale. It would make no sense. The opening of John's Gospel, his, his record of the life of Jesus, provides the most detailed explanation in all of Scripture 
about the nature of this incarnation. So in verses 1 through 8 of John 1, uh, John, the writer, explains the distinctiveness, yet the oneness of God and the Word. And then John, the writer, tells us about John the Baptist, a man who came as a precursor uh, to the coming of the Word into the world. So John the Baptist himself was not the Word, but he was you know, like the morning star, the one whose appearance signaled the coming of the Son. So that's verses 1 through 8. And then we pick up in our text for this morning, uh, John 1, verses 9 through 13. Uh, John 1, verses 9 through 13. This is God's word to us. As, as Keith was just saying, Isaiah 66 says, the Lord looks to the one who trembles at his word. This is God's word to us. Read with me. In, uh, beginning in verse 9. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. These verses show us two things, uh, God's revelation and man's response to God's revelation. God's revelation and man's response. So we consider, first of all, God's revelation. Look again at verse 9. It says, the true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. Now, when John says the true light he's referring to a specific person, to Jesus of Nazareth. That's obvious from what he goes on to say in verses 10 and 11 and the rest of the book. Uh, But when he says the true light, he's distinguishing between this light and some lesser light. Not necessarily a false light, but some lesser light. And, And what is that lesser light? Well, it's the light of the sun in the sky that, that God created. Now, darkness existed in creation before the fall. Remember, God said, let there be light, and it pushed back the darkness, but only temporarily. The darkness returned, and it was light again, and then it was dark again, and the light and the dark shared time. So man and, man and, and woman in the garden experienced day and night. Uh, But darkness was good. It was a symbol, but not a symbol for ignorance or evil or sin. It was a symbol for something good. Darkness symbolized rest. Just as God had rested at the end of all his creative acts, um, so man would rest in the dark hours of the day, remembering their dependence on God, remembering God's creative work and how he rested at the end of it. So darkness was good. But after the rebellion of Adam and Eve, because they rebelled against the Creator, uh, humanity and all of creation w- was twisted and perverted, so all that was good was, was twisted into something other than what it was meant to be, and this included darkness. Darkness was twisted, and it no longer symbolized something good, but rather was symbolic of a permanent darkness, man's spiritual darkness. So the sun would continue to rise day after day, and yet man remains in darkness spiritually. This is why we needed a true light, 
something even better than the light of creation. So the, the light of Genesis, you know, the sun in the sky, points forward to, symbolizes the light of Jesus. Well, this makes sense, of course. The creator, God, has patterned himself into creation. He has embedded the truths of the story that he unfolds in the structures of the world that he has created. This is what Paul teaches in Romans chapter 1 when he says, what can be known about God is plain to humanity. It's clear to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. And although God made himself plain in creation and gave men every advantage to know him, still humanity willfully remained in darkness, worshiping and serving the creation or idols or kings or concocted religions, but but refusing to acknowledge the creator who stands beyond the universe. This view remains today. There's a pervasive view today that nothing exists beyond the material world, that nothing exists beyond what can be subjected to the scientific method. But this view doesn't account for the human soul. Why would you care so much if someone murders your spouse or your child? It's because that person, perhaps sitting beside you this morning, is is more than material. They are a soul as well. And you know that intuitively. And your soul attaches to other souls through love, which is also something that can't be explained by naturalism. And beyond the existence of souls, not just bodies, there are also obvious moral codes embedded in all of us. Murdering would not be wrong simply because it offends you. It would be inherently evil, and we all recognize that to be true. Every culture, every era of history and anthropology, you have these universally recognized truths that are unassailable. But where would moral norms like that come from in a material-only world? Do stones philosophize about morality? Clearly not. You see, the true light is a witness to humanity that the creator who imprinted himself on creation has now come even closer. Not only imprinted on creation, but entering into creation to reveal himself even more clearly, even more convincingly, the creator makes himself known. So the true light, the ability to perceive the existence of the divine behind the world that he has created this is the true light that we needed and that true light is even as an infant in the major jesus of nazareth so he is the true light and notice that this true light gives light to everyone jesus the true light enlightens everyone the life of Jesus is truly remarkable. You know, as, as a church, we've been on a trek through Matthew's Gospel for about three years, almost 100 sermons uh, in Matthew's Gospel. And we've still got six chapters to go. So thank you, Tom, for leading us through Matthew's Gospel. The, the effect of 
your preaching in the gospel has been good for our souls as a church. You know, seeing what's there, how to walk it out, the, the cumulative effect that that has on us is so helpful. I've noticed in my own soul the, um, the turn to adoration, you know, which is always when the gospel is explained, when, when the life of Jesus is unfolded. Every time, in one sense, the application is quite simple. Oh, come, let us adore him. And, and that has been true in Matthew's Gospel. We see Jesus teaching uh, the Sermon on the Mount. He says, blessed are the merciful and the peacemakers. Blessed are the pure in heart and those who don't retaliate. And we're left worshiping a teacher who is able to fully and perfectly embody all that he teaches. We long for a teacher like that. And Jesus was that teacher or a few chapters later, a paralytic comes to him in despair and Jesus says, Son, be encouraged. Your sins are forgiven. Rise, pick up your bed and go home. And we're drawn to worship that this man who has such power to heal and forgive sins and such compassion directed toward a paralytic. In the same chapter, a woman who has been diseased her whole life comes to Jesus and Jesus says to her again, Daughter, be encouraged. Your faith has made you whole. And again, we're compelled to worship a, a healer who can make whole. And so Jesus' very manner of life, his teaching, his power, his compassion, and the way that he exercises those things should inspire us to adore him and where possible seek to emulate him. This is enlightening to us. He is all that humanity was meant to be. But of course, Jesus isn't simply a remarkable human. He's more than that. Jesus reveals God to us. So what does it mean that he enlightens humanity or that he gives light to everyone? Well, it means also that he brings an even more convincing and appealing and even tangible demonstration of who God is. From the beginning, Knowledge of God should have been plain to mankind in the created order. That's what Paul was saying in those verses from Romans 1 that I just mentioned. Uh, But despite this advantage, the evidence of the creator in creation, still the majority of the world did not know God. So what was God to do? Was he to keep silence before so great a a wrong and, and allow humanity to go on being deceived and kept in ignorance about him? If so, and, and Athanasius in his work on the Incarnation traces this flow of thought out, he says, then, then why, why would God have made man if man was to worship others? Why would he have made man in his image originally? What possible profit could it be to God himself who made men if, having made them, they regarded others as their makers? This would be tantamount to his having made them for others and not for himself. So Athanasius goes on to give this illustration. He says, Even an earthly king, though he is only a man, does not allow lands that he has colonized to pass into other hands or to desert them to other rulers, but sends letters and friends and even visits them himself to recall them to his allegiance rather than to allow his work to be undone. This is what God has done. He has come to us and made an even more convincing appeal for his creation to demonstrate allegiance to its creator. 
If you were taking a walk on the beach and saw ripples in the sand, you would assume that the waves had created those ripples. Nature does that kind of thing. It's full of patterns. It, it is orderly and creates patterns. And those patterns should make plain to us intentional design, the creator behind the patterns. But God has gone one step further than only implying himself in creation. If again you were walking along the beach and you saw the words, John loves Mary, written into the sand with a heart around it and an arrow passing through the heart, you would assume not that the waves had done it, but that some young romantic couple had been walking down the beach and scribbled those symbols into the sand. Because it's not just a pattern, but it's information that's communicated. It's more than a pattern. It's not just implicit, but it's clear and convincing. And God, in revealing himself in Jesus Christ, went one step further. He has left a message. He has spoken clearly through information about himself in the revelation of Jesus Christ. So he truly is the true light who enlightens everyone. Let me ask you, let me ask you to to ponder three simple questions. First of all, where did you come from? Where did you come from? From what source could something as complex and beautiful as the human body originate? A soul-body combo. Material and immaterial fused together. Where did you come from? Scripture says the obvious answer is that you were created. Okay, second question. What allegiance do you owe the Creator? What allegiance, if there was a Creator, if you were created, what allegiance would you owe Him? Again, it seems necessary to say that your life should align with everything that He says and commands. You are His. As Psalm 100 says, we are His people. The sheep of His pasture. Third question, has the Creator revealed Himself? Has the Creator revealed Himself? Yes, He has. Your Creator has made Himself known to you in many ways, ultimately in the person of Jesus Christ. So all that Jesus says and who He is, we must respond to. Which leads us to our second point, humanity's response. Humanity's response to God's revelation. So Jesus comes as a good teacher, stooping to the level of the student. He comes into the world not to judge the world, but, but rather to enlighten, to bring yet another advantage, to leave no excuse for um, rebellion against the Creator. How does humanity respond? Well, look at verses 10 through 13 again. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. There are two kinds of responses that John describes here. 
by some, the first group, Jesus is unknown and unwelcome. By others, the second group, he is both received and believed in. Well, as for that first group, the, the ignorant and inhospitable, why? Why would humanity, especially his own people, not recognize him? This is a, a tragic irony that John describes here. The world bears his thumbprint. John says the world was made through him. This means that, that Jesus, who we recognize as the baby in the manger, was the designer, creator of all things, even the baby's body that he arrived in. He made it all. You know, some of you have been studying Colossians for the past few months, and you'll remember where another biblical writer, the Apostle Paul, once an enemy of Jesus and persecutor of his people, had come to agree with John about Jesus. Paul says to the Colossians that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. By him, by means of his hands, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. You know, so Paul, the persecutor, had come to agree with John the Apostle in what he says here, that the world was made through him. Why then was he not recognized? Well, perhaps as an infant showing up you know, as a son of a, of a peasant Jew being born in a manger, maybe, maybe news simply hadn't gotten out yet. But surely once he begins healing and doing all sorts of miraculous works and teaching with authority, which people recognize, why after all of that was he still not recognized? What sign did they want from God? What could you possibly want God to do that he has not already done to reveal himself? The, the story is told of uh, someone asking Bertrand Russell, the famous British atheist, um, what he would do if he got to heaven and, and God said, why did you not believe in me? And Bertrand Russell shot back, not enough evidence, God, not enough evidence. God says to humanity, not a good excuse. It was more than sufficient evidence. What more could you want from the creator than to make himself known in creation, first of all, and then even more convincingly known through entering creation in the person of Jesus Christ. Insufficient evidence is not the answer. There is something behind that. Why do we not want to recognize him? Quite simply because we resist being governed. We resist being governed. We have an autonomous impulse. And this goes back to Adam and Eve in the garden resisting even the single prohibition from their creator and rebelling against him. And we are their children in every way. Their autonomy is a part of our DNA. If you, if you know your Old Testament stories, you'll remember the story of Joseph in the Old Testament telling, uh, telling his brothers about these two dreams that he had. In the first dream, he envisioned all of them in the field and the 11 sheaves of wheat belonging to his brothers bow down to Joseph's sheaves of wheat. And then in the second dream, 
Uh, you, you just want Joseph to stop talking at this point. Um, in the second dream, he says he saw 11 stars and the sun and the moon bowing down to him. Well, the, the implication of these, these visions, which Joseph's brothers clearly understood, was that they and even his parents would bow down to Joseph. And what was their response? Genesis says they hated him even more. They conspired against him to kill him. They threw him into a pit with no water. They sold him into slavery. They resisted governance in the same way that humanity resists the governance of its creator. We despise being governed. We love the highways but hate the taxes. You can handle having a boss at work, but you would hate having a boss in your home. You know, around Christmas, we, we love thinking of Jesus as the baby in the manger. And we, we even love envisioning the three magi coming and, and bowing down to him. But we find it much harder to bow down ourselves. You know, or, or perhaps you, you find it doable to bow down you know, in an in a outward or appearance sort of way when you're in church on Sunday mornings, but what about bowing down in all the realities of day in, day out life and all that Jesus calls us to, bowing down to him? We are resistant to this kind of governance. So there are the ignorant and rebellious, <clears throat> but notice a second group of responders. John says that, some received him and even believed in his name. Well, that's an interesting way of putting it, isn't it? Jesus is not merely appreciated, but he must be believed in. This is something greater than mere appreciation. If you're visiting today, uh, imagine whoever you came with asking you over lunch you know, what you thought of the guy who was preaching or what you, what you thought about what he said. Well, those would be reasonable questions, right? Uh, but what if the person asked you, would you like to believe in the person who is preaching this morning? Well, then you might start to feel a little bit awkward, right? Like you were being drawn into a cult or something. You see, to believe in someone means to be so convinced of their authority and genuineness that you submit yourself completely to them. To believe in Jesus means to thoughtfully consider the totality of his person and his work and his, his message, all that he taught, and completely submit to him. So, for instance, we'd have to take him seriously when he says to all people, if anyone would follow me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. To believe in Jesus will cost everything. Francis Schaeffer said, uh, you are not Christ's disciple in the sense of following him if this, is not your way of uh, if this is not your way of life, denying yourself in the realities of daily life. This means taking up your cross daily in obedience in big and little things. And the Christian's cross is bound to have splinters. It will be uncomfortable to receive Jesus, to believe in him, will cost you everything. But look at what is gained. 
uh, to those who give up claim on their lives and believe him, believe in him, John says, to them he gave the right to become children of God. When it says he gave the right, it's a strong Greek word for power or authority or confidence. You know, something that you can claim with utter certainty as, as definitely belonging to, your, to you, being yours. Those who submit their lives to Jesus have the right to lay claim of their position in God's family. So this, this then is reunion with the Creator. To become children of God is to be reunited with the Creator. This is the central work that Jesus came to do, to bring wayward children back into the family. And how would he accomplish this? What would Jesus do to provide you the right to become children of God? He lived perfectly. He said no to temptations every time so that his perfections accumulated through a life of resisting urges could cover over your sins and inability to resist temptations. He lived the perfect life that God has demanded from you and yet he died. Now, from the beginning, death was punishment for sin, and yet he had no sin. So why did he die? Well, he did not only die innocently, he also died willingly as a replacement for the punishment that we each earn each day. Through his work then of living perfectly on your behalf and dying willingly in your place, he makes possible reunion with the Father. He brings wayward children back into the family. And so John says in his first letter, Behold, what kind of love the Father has shown to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. This privilege, this right comes to the one who believes in Jesus. You see that the true light coming into the world and enlightening everyone is not some abstract philosophical concept. It is personal and relational. God has made himself known to you, even to the point of bringing you into his family, making you his own with all the rights and privileges of the family. So acceptance with God the Father should be reorienting for us. Being accepted by the Father should be emotionally stabilizing for us. Here's what I mean by emotionally stabilizing. God's acceptance works itself out in the way that we think of ourselves and the way that we process life. So God's acceptance works itself out in how you feel about your body too tall, too short, too fat, too thin. God says, you're my, you're my daughter. You're my son. I, I created your body. Rejoice and delight in being accepted by me. Or if you struggle with feeling discouraged over not feeling accepted by others, you know, if you truly believe that you have been drawn into the family of God, the creator of the universe, then why would you worry about such things? You're, you're freed from this dominating need to be accepted by others. So 
this reality is emotionally stabilizing. It would be healthy for us to evaluate and seek to, to pinpoint those areas of your life that you know to be or, or suspect may be emotionally misshapen. Things like anxiety, uh, fear, worry, despair, guilt, shame, resentment. And then, and then once you've identified those areas in your life, those, those misshapen emotions, you know, prayerfully consider how acceptance with the Father, acceptance from God, that privilege of being a child of God should reshape that emotional experience. You see, at the same time that God accepts us absolutely as we are, He also reshapes us into what He wants us to be. So those who come into the family begin to look like the family. And so part of the privilege of being in the family is beginning to bear the image of God. Beginning to look more and more like Him. Paul says to the Ephesians, be imitators of God. So part of this privilege then is is the hard work, but privilege of repenting of former ways of life and and putting off those besetting sins and beginning to, to look more and more like God and live as part of the family. Living at peace with others. Free to forgive because you know that you've been forgiven by God. Not yielding to dominating sexual passions that, that promise happiness but never deliver. Possessing a depth of joy that transcends the difficulties of life because we know there's a greater purpose, a, a deeper happiness, and an eternal destiny. And so we have freedom to serve the poor and needy because we know we were profoundly poor and needy and yet served by God in Christ We wake up each morning expecting God's goodness to us because His wrath against sin has been turned away. And so our experience of life should be completely reoriented and look completely different. Children of God, we are sons and daughters with all the privileges. And if you're struggling with doubt over that, you need assurance of these things. Uh, Paul says in Romans chapter 8, to those who are in Christ Jesus, all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. You're not only sons and daughters, but you've been given the Spirit, the Spirit who bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God and says to the doubting heart, do not doubt. You are certainly His daughter. You are certainly His son. The the Spirit is a witness to us of this truth. As long as you're believing in Jesus, you're assured of this privileged position and you have the Spirit testifying to its veracity. John, uh, in verse 13 of our passage this morning, indicates the foundation of this kind of confidence or assurance. 
He says that these children who are born into the family of God are born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Born of God. And God could no more disown one of his children, one who he's given birth to, than he could disown his own divine eternal son. This new birth into God's family is a divine work, permanent and unshakable in every sense. You have the witness of the Spirit toward this confidence. And if you struggle, you have not only the Spirit, but you also have the encouragement of others who are following Jesus. So if you read verses 12 and 13 and you feel distant from these truths that, that um, believing in Jesus yields the right to become children of God, if you feel doubting or <clears throat> detached from that, well, don't withdraw from others, but lean into relationships with others who believe in Christ. There, there is a tendency to retreat in such times, but often the grace of God for the, the struggler, the doubter, is stored up in relationships with others who believe. Turn to the Father. Seek the Spirit's assurance. Enjoy encouragement from other believers. The true light, the child in the manger, signals an opportunity for us to become children of God. And as we look forward to Christmas, you know, during this Advent season, I'd encourage you to take advantage of this time by, by turning your heart and at times your conversations with others toward this topic. As you set up Christmas decorations, Think and talk with your, your roommates or friends or, or family ab- about these things, about the incarnation of Jesus Christ, that God would take on flesh, about the privilege that this revelation has brought to us. There are Advent resources on the, on the church blog that um, would help you with this to, to use with your family, uh, some daily devotionals and some other resources. I encourage you to check those out and spend time yourself and as a family or with friends talking through these things over uh, the next few weeks. The easiest way to fail to appreciate this season is simply to not think about it. God has graciously sent Jesus, the true light, into the world. He has revealed himself through the baby in the manger. Such a momentous revelation warrants our whole life allegiance and certainly our daily attention. So as we pause now for a moment of silence, reflect on the privilege of being called children of God and ask your Father that you might fully enjoy and walk in that privilege in the days ahead. Then after we have a few moments to think through that, one of the elders will come and close us in prayer.